Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. We decided to grow sweet potatoes because really it's one of our favorite roots. It's just delicious. And it's also very rich in vitamin A and we need it for, to complete our diet, a lot of vitamin A. And you know, a sweet potato, it has 100% or more of daily intake and in vitamin A. And the purple varieties also have a lot of antioxidants. This is my friend Anna Gaspar, a permaculture teacher in Costa Rica who lives off the grid with her husband Ian. They operate a place called Finca Tierra, off of the Caribbean coast, a nine-acre permaculture farm and education center. I took a design course with them a couple years ago for a month, and they have an incredible setup. Their home is built out of bamboo sourced directly from their backyard, which is a wild, tropical jungle full of howling monkeys, parrots, and all sorts of other creatures. They have acres full of food and they've basically gotten to a point where they grow most of what they consume. We really wanted to prove to ourselves and to the world that this was possible, you know, and that we could be free from a system of modern slavery, which is eight to 10 hours a day, working 330 days a year, you know, for like barely leaving. So we did it, we break out, so we separated from the system and we really don't need money except for like other things that we want to buy in the supermarket or traveling or, or whatever. But money is no longer a need because we have all of our needs, basic needs covered and in abundance. So we really have the time to develop ourselves spiritually and personally and spend time with our loved ones and enjoying life, not working in a modern slavery system in a part of a machine that just keeps damaging the world and like based in an economic system that is based on the illimited extraction of limited resources. I'm Clarissa Way and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. Now in the hands of different cultures, one ingredient can take on so many wondrous forms. And as the world faces dramatic upwards shifts in our base temperature, climate-centric discussions on crops will become increasingly important to the resiliency of our food systems. This is the 10th and last episode of the season. And so far, we've done a deep dive on sustainable ingredients in hot areas around the world. We've talked about how there is only one type of banana in the grocery store, about nitrogen-fixing legumes, and how the cactus is a symbol of resistance in Palestine. This last episode is about the humble sweet potato, which grows like a weed in many places of the world and is completely edible, including its roots and leaves. Despite its name, it's not a true potato at all. It's in the morning glory family and only distantly related to the common potato. Sweet potato itself is a very hardy and robust crop. It doesn't require a lot of labor input. This is Bettina Heider, a researcher at the International Potato Center in Peru. 
Yeah, it has a funny name, but we belong to the consultative group of International Agriculture Research. That's a partnership network of 15 centers across the globe, and each center has mandate crops. The International Potato Center works on potato and sweet potato, and we also work on nine Andean roots and tuber crops that are minor crops, mainly important in this region. Our focus is on innovation and research on root and tuber crops dedicated to improve nutrition, health and food security for people around the globe, particularly smallholder farmers and people in poor conditions. We work on improving food security and try to find affordable access to nutritious crops. Bettina specializes in the sweet potato which has a larger growing range than the common potato. The sweet potato has a much larger ecological ability to grow in different conditions. We can grow it from sea level up to almost 3,000 meters of altitude. Of course, always depending a little bit on the local climate, but it can grow in subtropics. It can withstand very harsh conditions. And potato is much more focused on temperate zones than sweet potato. And sweet potato now is even entering Western Europe now with the varieties that we have and the, the growing conditions that exist there. We basically are interested in the orange flesh sweet potato because of it is high beta-carotene content. And that is a major nutrient, very important, especially for sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, where vitamin A deficiency is a big, big health problem. And this is something sweet potato is really outstanding in the beta-carotene content that the body converts into vitamin A. It is also quite high in other nutrients as vitamin C, for example. But it also is extremely interesting because it's superior to crops like maize and wheat because it produces more energy per time unit and land unit as any other crop. First domesticated in the Americas more than 5,000 years ago, there are over 7,000 sweet potato cultivars and an infinite amount of ways to cook them. To learn more, I asked Anna how she prepares it in Costa Rica. I love sweet potato. It's one of my favorite starches. I grew up eating it. I think it's everybody in Costa Rica grows up eating it. The typical plate and the indigenous, how they usually do it, is sancochado, which is just boiled and just add a little bit of salt and smash. You can just eat it like that. But also baked in fire, you just put the whole root in the wood fire ovens and we sometimes like cut in half and stuff it with like other veggies or meat or things like that. Also saw the borucas I remember eating in a boruca indigenous community and they use the fried sweet potato leaves with eggs as an omelet. And in the Afro-Caribbean culture, they use it in rondon, which is like a soup where everything you find, you put it there, you know, like the rundown. So they usually is with fish and, and other roots like cassava and malanga and, and other veggies, salt, chile, pepper, black pepper. It's delicious. In coconut uh, milk. So yeah, it's really good. We also use it in puree and french fries too, or as chips fried in oil. 
And in Fincatier, we have uh, many plates with it, like the ones that I mentioned, definitely, and also baked with coconut oil and thyme, or we use it to make veggie patties. We mix it with a picadillo, which is like a mix of veggies, and sweet potato, smashed. We make a little ball, we make it into a patty, and we use it for like, you know, for like hamburgers, let's say, like veggie hamburgers, or just with tomato sauce on top and a little bit of rice. In Taiwan, where I live, the sweet potato has been consumed since the 17th century. Brought over to Asia by the Spanish in the Philippines, it made its way to China when officials realized it could feed the country's growing population. Immigrants from eastern China brought it to Taiwan, and it became one of the leading crops on the island. In fact, sometimes when I interview older folks here, they tell me about how all they ate growing up was sweet potato, usually just boiled or roasted. For breakfast, it was sometimes cubed up and thrown in rice porridge. Many folks also remember roasting the sweet potato in a hole in the ground. The root is so ubiquitous in Taiwan that in fact the word sweet potato in Taiwanese, han ji, is used to refer to people whose families have been in Taiwan for hundreds of years. It's a timeless starch because of how easy it grows. And here in Taiwan, we eat the roots, the leaves, and use the processed starch to make dumplings or to thicken stews. In my garden, I grow it mostly for the leaves. I don't actually do anything to it. It just pops up in the empty spaces in the ground, and when I'm low on greens, I'll just harvest a handful and saute some with a bit of salt, garlic, and oil in a hot wok. There are what we call forage varieties. In many parts of this world, uh, the leaves or the vines are consumed as vegetables, as spinach-like vegetables, for example. Very popular in Africa and parts of Asia, here in Latin America. And the sweet potato doesn't just feed humans. It's not so well known, but you can also feed it to animals and it increases dairy production, for example. It is very good for pig production. Many Asian farmers have a couple of rows of sweet potato behind the house that they feed to their animals. And then when other crops fail, they can also eat the roots. Yeah, this is something that is very specific for sweet potato. Over the years, the breeding of the sweet potato has made it a highly adaptable carb. You have varieties now that are mature, can be harvested after uh, less than 90 days. So that makes it very interesting for uh, growing conditions in Europe, where you have a very small growth window, a period where the conditions are warm enough to grow a sweet potato. But it also is, for example, a crop that can fit between two rice growing seasons because of the short duration that is getting quite significantly below 90 days with the new varieties. So for the first episode of the season, I did an episode on cassava and found out that monoculture cassava farms have made them really susceptible to diseases. Is the sweet potato also vulnerable like that? It is pretty okay. It has, of course, some issues as all crops, which you can either address agronomically by shifting the crops year after year, for example, by giving the soil time to rest. But the main problem that sweet potato has is virus disease that's very strong in Africa. And there is no good way to combat it except for agronomical measures like rooking out these plants that are infected. You eliminate them. You can plant border plants, so you make sure that you don't plant next to an infested field of your neighbor, for example. These kind of things you can do. It's basically monitoring, making sure you use clean planting material. 
and but it can be a severe issue. This, this disease is present around the world. So there are different viruses, but sweet potato virus disease is particularly destructive. And we are looking for plant-based solutions to find varieties that are more resistant than the present one that we have. The other major disease that's very destructive is our weevils that live in the ground. And here also, there's some level of tolerance. There are varieties that uh, have some certain traits, like they grow their roots deeper or they mature faster to escape the weevil that can be used, for example. We don't have light blight, which is a big problem. Potato, that doesn't exist in sweet potato. And as I said, it's a very robust crop. It can be called even a wheat. It is very hard to really destroy it <laughs> and don't harvest anything. That makes it also an emergency intervention crop, for example. And it has replaced in parts of Africa, in Uganda, for example, cassava, because there was this major disease that entered cassava in the 90s and it was replaced by sweet potato. I'd consider as a climate change winner, it will enter more and more cropping areas. It has this potential to withstand heat and drought. It is a crop that can still be grown when other crops are failing. So by now we know a couple of things. That depending on where you are in the world, the sweet potato is an easy-to-grow root crop that can really sustain a family. And that all parts of the plant are edible. But how do you grow it, and what does it even look like? Sweet potato leaves are considerably heart-shaped with hollow stems. It's very similar to water spinach. They're actually in the same plant family. And the root is, well, like a potato. But when you cut into it, it's bright orange, sometimes purple or even white. The sweet potato is native to Central and South American regions and is a perennial trailing vine, but we grow it as an annual for root production. You can definitely eat the shoots and the leaves, and sometimes we do, but we do prefer other, other greens. We usually plant them in the mulch root beds, as I said before, and the propagation is done by pruning off the first 20 to 30 centimeters, like 12 inches of the new shoot growth from a previous patch. But you can also, like if you're starting to grow sweet potato, you can just get the tuber and leave it in your counter and then you'll see that it's starting to shoot. And when the shoots are like 30 centimeters or so, you can just cut them and plant them in your mulch patch. Well, how we grow it, we recommend planting them in a mulch bed, but they can also be planted in a mulch patch in the food forest. Sweet potatoes prefer full sun and require loose soil to grow large roots, so it's important to loosen the soil by digging or adding uh, organic matter. And if you're working on low-lying or flat land, they should be grown in a raised bed or a mound, as they do not tolerate overly moist or soil or, or flooding. We plant 20 plants in two rows every like 25 centimeters apart and every four months. And we keep rotating the plantings with also another crops like calabaza or yuca or taro. O sea, yuca is cassava and taro, malanga for us. The propagation is done by pruning off the first 20 to 30 centimeters, like 12 inches of the new shoot growth from the previous batch. As we plant it progressively, we can have even three harvests a year. We start harvest at three months and then use tips to plant another, then continue to harvest the first bed or another month or two as, as needed. They have to be kept in a dry, cool, but not refrigerator place. And it would last a few weeks after the harvest, depending on how humid is the season. 
and, and it's also best to harvest the whole patch and then plant again in a new area to get rid of other pests. If the roots are heavily attacked by insects, the damage has to be cut off because it could have a different flavor and, and also it could be a little bit toxic. So Anna, I've obviously been on your farm before and know that you guys grow a variety of starches. Yucca or cassava we made into fries or sometimes we just boil it with a bit of salt and pepper. Taro, which we made into delicious burger patties. You guys also have breadfruit, jackfruit, and of course the sweet potato. Why is the sweet potato such an important crop for you guys in your self-sustaining tropical system? The main benefits for us and why we plant it and why it's considered sustainable for us is because of the vitamin A. It's very high, as I said before. One sweet potato can have more than 100% intake of the daily value of the vitamin A. And it's also very rich in antioxidants, especially the purple varieties. And you and Ian, more than anyone else that I know, are really tuned into the effects of a changing climate. Because you guys mostly live off of the grid, you guys are really aware of your surroundings. How are you adapting? So even the climate change is really affecting the area because there's more drought and less rain and stuff. Usually for any extreme weather events, what we do with the sweet potatoes is that we put it in like really deep mulch patches. So for example, we would like dig five to 10 centimeters and then add compost mixed with biochar. On top of that, we add a little bit of cal. And on top of that, we put vetiver grass, like thick layer of vetiver grass. So basically we don't have problems of watering them ever. We don't have to weed it and it grows like really, really well. And before we did that, we did have uh, problems with the sweet potato and, and other crops because of extreme droughts or inundations. And what was your approach to designing your food forest? Although climate is, is changing, but we just chose the tropical plants from everywhere in the tropics in the world and try them in the farm and see which ones were good for the farm and we're not like stealing nutrients from other plants or damaging other plants. And the ones that we saw that were doing great, like we're thriving, those we, we started producing. Because what we wanted was to grow a complete plant-based diet. And in able to do that, we definitely needed other plants that are not from Costa Rica. And I'm sure people are curious. Tell us about your farm and how you got into this journey. Over the years, I've visited a lot of so-called self-sustaining gardens and farms. And throughout the season, I've profiled a lot of plants that I've seen in them. But very few people actually garden on the scale that you guys do. And I know from firsthand experience that you guys are truly sustainable. As in you generate your own shelter, water, power, and food. And with the exception of cactus, you guys truly grow and eat every ingredient that has been profiled in this season so far. I'm a Costa Rican woman and I started permaculture. Well, I started looking for sustainable ways of living since a very young age. And, and then I met my husband, Ian, when my late 20s and he was also looking for sustainable ways of living so we decided to create a sustainable lifestyle first thinking about the infrastructure and which materials we're going to use for constructing and also growing the materials in the farm like bamboo leaf that and wood we also thought about the energy and we have a lot of sun here so we use solar panels and we also catch rainwater for all of our water needs 
Really, when we were already planting all of our fruit trees and our veggie gardens, thinking about how can we supply for a complete diet for ourselves without the need of going to the supermarket. Our farm is nine acres in the middle of the jungle, but it was a cattle pasture like 20 years before we got it, 10 years ago. So it was very damaged soil and pure clay. So we had to regenerate the whole area to be able to plant. And we keep doing it with biochar and compost and, you know. We grow, I don't know, right now, like about 500 varieties of, of edible plants counting the trees. So we have like a little sustainable house made with bamboo and wood from the farm and a little bit of concrete and leaf thatch roofs. And it's in the middle of the jungle, but it's surrounding by food forest and veggie gardens and root gardens and also grain gardens with beans and corn and all that because we needed to have the whole complete diet in carbohydrates, in proteins, in vitamins, in minerals and, and so on. But we realized that you don't need all that land for a complete diet, but we did it because we were hosting permaculture courses and we had to give like 17,000 meals a year from the farm. We realize now, and the, the course that we're going to be teaching online, it's going to be about how to grow in 2,000 square meters, a complete plant-based diet for two people, and you will have things to store or things to like sell, if you will. So yeah, that's a big thing because when we started, we didn't know anything. Most of the episodes in this season has stressed that part of the strategy to creating a sustainable diet is prioritizing perennials, meaning plants that grow all year round and plants that have evolved for the respective climate. How did you guys pick up these skills? We came across with the book of Bill Mollison in permaculture and that really, really helped us because it was an amazing tool because it's like a compilation of a lot of indigenous traditions and practices and methods, you know, of agriculture and of sustainable living in every way in the Cosmovision. And also it's a compilation of other traditional practices and other modern practices and modern sustainable technologies to use according to the place where you live to create a sustainable lifestyle. So really that book in permaculture was like a really great tool, one of our, our best tools really. I'm a, I'm a lawyer and my, my husband is an artist. And from not knowing anything and visiting indigenous farms and, and other Costa Rican farmers and, and going to university courses and reading a bunch of books and then finding out about permaculture and all that, it took us like five years to become completely 100% self-sufficient. I mean, with no need of, of any money at all, like five years. But that's what we did this online course. So people can actually create a complete sustainable lifestyle with growing their own complete diet in 2,000 square meters with like an abundance of more than 60 edible plants, including the food forest and the veggie gardens and stuff. So basically in like one or two years, people can become completely self-sufficient in working as we did for like five years, including Saturdays and Sundays and experimenting and like making mistakes and, you know, but um, it's a great life. I, I definitely recommend it. As I said, once you become self-sufficient, you have time for yourself and for your personal development. So that's the big gain. And also, you know, you're helping heal yourself while you're helping heal the, the planet. I'll be back in for season two, where we will focus on temperate crops. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. A thank you to the Climate Cuisine team, co-producer and audio editor Kat Hong, researcher Olivia Maeda, production assistant Xin Yun, and intern Indio Clarkson. 
I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Katolchak, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. And you can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.